0: sermon that I'm going to share today, I first crafted to be preached on February 19th. And on February 18th, I left to go to Florida to be with my dying mother. But this sermon was locked in my heart, and I think it's so appropriate on Father's Day, for me anyway, that I shared this message with you because it continues to be ringing in my heart. And, and it speaks to me in these days where we really need to think about our hearts as being calibrated. Calibrated for what we face in life and in the world. This starts a series we're going to kind of move in and out of through the summer in the Psalms called the Worship Training Manual. And the Psalms really is a worship training manual. But the Psalms are not simply clichés and religious platitudes. I think we treat them that way. We kind of read through them and we recite them, perhaps, and we just kind of move on our way. But they offer us language for prayer and imagination for when God does not make sense, when God appears absent, when it seems like the air has been sucked out of our souls but they also do something else. They they elevate our vision above the fray of life, giving us glimpses of the God who loves us. So with this in mind, we encountered this psalm that Molly read for us earlier, Psalm 99, and you're welcome to turn to Psalm 99 this morning if you'd like. In fact, we encountered this psalm that takes us to the highest pinnacle of what it means to be human. What it means to be human. What the greatest endeavor of the human heart actually is. Psalm 99 calls us to the one activity that makes us most human. For in the hard wiring of every soul, of every one of us here, of every person we bump into today, of every relationship you will encounter, at the the heart of everyone is what the Bible says in Ecclesiastes 3, God has set eternity in the human heart. And that means one thing, we are made for worship. I know you start talking about things like worship and we start wondering well what does that have to do with the real things in life? What does that have to do with real life? You know the place where we apply dollar signs or dates in the calendar or my whatever. But you see the need to worship is so powerful. That if and when we do not direct it to its rightful target, we won't stop there. We'll find something else to replace it. Something that will be a cheap imitation of the real thing and something, as David Foster Wallace says, will eat us alive. In the commencement speech in 2005, Wallace shared these words, which I shared with you, by the way, on Mother's Day. But this is a little more fuller quote. He says there is actually no such thing as atheism. No such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship or some inviolable set of ethical principles is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, he goes on, If they are where you tap real meaning in life, like the real things in life, then you will never have enough. You will never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when age starts showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power and you will end up feeling weak and afraid and you will need more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's just that they're unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. And this is why it's so important that we calibrate our hearts. In the words of one of the greatest philosophers of all time, Winnie the Pooh, (laughs) sometimes the smallest things take up the most room in your heart. Right? And then what they do is, is like anything else, when you have a, a certain capacity and you add things to it, a container, it displaces something. It displaces whatever's in there. And so those small things displace the most magnificent one from taking up room in my heart. And so you see, that teaches me something. That teaches me that worship is about who's actually ruling me. Who's the monarch of my life? Who's the monarch of my soul, my true self? Who is that for you? If it is God, name that. Name Him as such. If it's yourself... Name it. If it's another person, name that. Is it something else? Name it. Because here's the reality you're not going to get away from worshiping. To be human is to worship, to be fully alive is to worship the living God. My scripture reading this week found me in the Old Testament minor prophet Hosea. And if you read the uh, common daily readings of the lectionary, you probably found yourself in Hosea 2. As I read the passage from Hosea 10, I thought, how relevant is that? Look at this passage. Talking about the people of Israel. As his fruit increased, he built more altars. As his land prospered, he adorned his sacred stones. Now we read that and we kind of go, what is he talking about? But you see, in that time, as they increased, as they prospered, as they succeeded, they were tempted to build more idols. They were tempted to create more idols, more things that displaced the true God. I shared this quote a couple weeks ago from John Calvin, the human mind is a perpetual factory for idols. And that's so true. Prosperity tempts us to idolatry. And consuming can lead us to misplaced worshiping. In Western spirituality, we are tempted to make worship about self-fulfillment, about um, self-actualization, about personal happiness. And the mantra is this, what can I get out of it? If the music is not current enough, or in some cases not nostalgic enough, we dismiss it as doing nothing for me. If the sermon is not relevant enough to my life or appealing enough to my desires or opinions or politics, we dismiss it as I'm not being fed. If we are not moved or made to feel good, we dismiss worship as, well, it just feels empty. But my friends, worship's sole intention and only audience is God. God. We gather around an audience of one, amen. We gather today around an audience of the one true God and King. And and imagine what's occurring right now when you sing your praises, when you give your thanks, when you lift up your prayers. Our Father who is in heaven experiences great joy when we recognize him as the audience of one it's not based on my wants it's not based on my emotions or even my circumstances that's why the recalibration of the heart in worship is important it is rooted in God himself. So over and over and over again, we hear the psalmist say, worship God. In Psalm 99, worship God. Verse three, let them praise your great and awesome name for he is holy. Verse five, exalt the Lord our God and worship if he is holy. Verse nine, exalt the Lord our God and worship for the Lord our God is holy. During that time in February, before I went, to be with my dying mother historically we were in the middle of a movement of the holy spirit in our country and the holy spirit was moving beginning of february 8th for 16 days it it began as a fresh movement of the spirit at asbury university maybe you remember the news reports Or maybe you followed it like me. Maybe you were praying for that to happen in your life and in our own church and in our own community. It's a unique time. And you know what it did? It blew up the perception that God is irrelevant as thousands, mostly young adults, cried out to God. But you know what our immediate temptation is? Our immediate temptation is to try to duplicate that, to try to replicate that. But here's the problem. That movement is God's. God's alone. It's about God. And and if you get anything from the Asbury movement, get this. It was birthed not in some special event, not in some special service, but it was a birth in seeking God in a regular, low-key, required chapel service. A required worship service. Low key, nothing fancy. In fact, most of the people left the service. But some of them said, huh, something in me tells me I need to go back. That's what happened. And they turned around and they went back and they felt compelled just to pray. By the way, it wasn't the administration of the school It wasn't the seasoned, decades-old Christians. It wasn't the fathers of the church. It was students. It was 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds, 20-year-olds, 21-year-olds. So when you see these 18, 19, 20, 22-year-olds in our congregation, thank God for their hearts for God. Amen? And those students turned back, and they went into that chapel. It was an ordinary unremarkable chapel service. And they went back in there, and God began to meet them. And what was interesting, it wasn't about like the hanky-waving of old days. It wasn't people with all kinds of outward expression. Most of it was humility, weeping, confession. And for 16 days, thousands and thousands of people migrated Wilmore, Kentucky, but get this, this is a good reason to show up to a regular, low-key worship service that doesn't look like much, to show up with a heart toward God, worshiping God, because you never know when you might have a -a once-in-a-lifetime encounter with God. For those students, some of those students, they'll probably never have that encounter again. They may never have an experience like that again. But that encounter has and will alter their life. This is why showing up to a, a regular, ordinary worship service is worthwhile because you never know. in the the practice of worship, in the calibration of worship, how your heart might be altered and your life might be changed and the trajectory of your life may very well be changed. Perhaps the most important time in all of this, in recognizing our capacity to worship and the truth of His presence, is when we feel least like doing it. It's easy to worship when you feel like worshiping. But what about when you're walking through the depths of depression? Or what about when everything you planned for suddenly is gone? What about when that loved one dies? What about when you're uncertain? What about when it's not what you want it to be? And you gather and you say, I'm going to worship my God. I don't feel like it. I don't feel positive My circumstances are not pointing to God, but I am setting my heart on pilgrimage with God. I am setting my heart on worshiping Him. This is the most practical and necessary activity when God seems absent, or blessing appears to have been cut off, or it just seems normal. It's the penultimate activity when you're in darkness worship. Pete Gregg in his book, God on Mute, writes, Jesus first reveals himself to and through those who endure suffering faithfully without ceasing to worship. What a statement that is, right? That simple statement has gripped my attention because it forces me to recognize, especially in reading the Scripture, that it's those who lived consistently and constantly as worshipers and endured suffering, yet they were unceasing in their worship of God. That challenges me. That really challenges me. I struggle when things are rough to worship God. Maybe you don't, but sometimes I do. But listen, listen to what it says about those of the faith that we read in Scripture in Hebrews chapter eleven. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. In other words, God is not ashamed to say, these are those who worship me. These who who did not get what they were hoping for, what they wanted. What they knew was possible. He, even though it was not as they had hoped for, they worship God, and I love that verse. Therefore, God is not ashamed of them. God is not ashamed to be called their God. Their worship was for God and God alone. And that forces me, forces Jeff de to examine my heart and how I respond when blessings are turned away and it seems like light is snuffed out in my soul. When we face those kind of places, our truest relationship with God is needed. Where even questions and doubts and anger become worship. Correct, you heard me say that. Questions and doubts and anger become worship. These become a bold act of worship. That's what the Bible teaches us. Acts chapter, or Psalm chapter 6, Have mercy on me, Lord, for I am faint. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are in agony. My soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord? How long? I should not be surprised by the encounters I have with unanswered prayer. With dry spiritual spells, where are you, God? When life's heartaches visit me. Now now hear me, I am not minimizing those. Not in the least bit, actually. I am acknowledging them as 70% of the Psalms do. We call that lament. And that is worship. And here's why it's worship. Having such freedom to even yell at God is a daring act of faith even when we are reduced down to the place where we cannot pray. My spiritual director, David Vryhoff, says this. Dare to hope. Even when you can't see a way forward, even when no solution is evident, even when darkness overwhelms you, rejoice in the Lord always. God is near, and you do not need to be afraid. You see, worship In God's good world, that's been marred by man's worst worship of self. Worship is a radical act of trust. That no matter what I'm feeling, no matter what I'm encountering and experiencing, dares to declare what the psalmist said. He's exalted over all the nations. Let them praise your great and awesome name, for he is holy. And it's from this singularity of worship From the time God's finger chiseled those words, you shall have no other gods before me. That we live as his kingdom reigning now. You see, we believe he will make all things right. We believe that. We believe in the death, resurrection, ascension, and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ to make all things right. We believe that. And we believe we will be part of the grand chorus that declares him worthy of praise for all eternity. But we do not wait to live for Jesus as king. So this psalm teaches us that a byproduct of life given over to the worship of God is a life that lives in his kingdom now. This too is worship. Listen again, Psalm 99, verse four. The king is mighty. What does it say? He loves justice. He has established equity. In Jacob you have done what is just and right. He loves justice, established equity, justice, and righteousness. Do you see that those are current kingdom values? Tomorrow is June 19th. Juneteenth. It celebrates the day that General Order number three was given by General Gordon Granger and was enacted in the last holdout state of Texas in setting slaves free. January 19, 1865, two months after Abraham Lincoln's assassination. This was general order number three, an absolute equality of personal rights and rights of property between former masters and slaves. You see, for the Christian, it was and is a recognition of the image of God in everyone, but especially of those who were denied a recognition of being image bearers through slavery. I would encourage you to write this down. There's a documentary called Juneteenth Faith and Freedom, it's put out by our friends from the Daily Bread, from our Daily Bread. It's a historical look at it, and you can't watch it without being humbled and understanding. But I'd invite you to look at that. But historian and pastor Russell Berry says this, it is always good for Christians to celebrate freedom. The end of the evil institution of slavery in our midst is valuable and valid no matter how messy and incomplete it is. There's a renewal possible with a celebration such as Juneteenth, Juneteenth. It's a reminder of where we've been and hopefully where we're going. Say, so what does that have to do with worship? Well, well, look what it says about our God. He loves justice. He established equity. He wants to do what's just and right. And that's an example of us as Christians celebrating that. Faith and freedom and justice and mercy in God. You see, these are current kingdom values. Our problem is that we often think of them as another time, that this kingdom is another place. Or we think of in terms of kingdom as physical boundaries or geopolitical power and control. But remember, remember the words of the one we worship, Jesus Some of the religious leaders came to him and they asked, when will the kingdom of God come? And Jesus answered, God's kingdom is coming, but not in a way that you will be able to see with your eyes. It is not coming with observable, visible signs. People will not say, look, here it is, or there it is, because God's kingdom is within you or among you or in your midst. You see, Jesus is the kingdom. And that alters how we live today, and that alters what we bring to our world today. And that's the first calibration of the heart when it comes to any issue in the world that we have. It's about God and God alone. It's about Jesus. God's kingdom is within you or among you or in your midst. And that, my friends, is reason alone to worship because we are saturated in the kingdom of God when Jesus is our savior. There's nothing in our lives that is separate from that. Nothing. And that is what Psalm 99 is about. Verse one starts it, it says, the Lord reigns. Notice what it does not say. It does not say the Lord reigned or the Lord will reign. It says the Lord reigns. This is present tense. He is Lord right now. It is a declaration of the worthiness of worship of God in the kingdom of God among us right now. And that brings me all the way back to where we started about being human. This is what the world needs. What do you think the world needs? We could all list all kinds of things that we think the world needs. But the world needs more human beings who are being as human as they can possibly be by worshiping the living God through Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. When that happens, then his kingdom will break out on earth as it is in heaven. When our primary aim is worship, then we are empowered to enmesh God's kingdom with the kingdom of those we encounter. And we call that loving our neighbor, which is an act Not of good works. It's an act of sacrificial worship to God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Which leads us to this final word. This is an act of love. Love for God. As the psalmist said in verse 8, the God who is the Lord our God, a forgiving God. And that is why we worship. And that is who we worship. Loving God. Loving God for being the God who loves us. Not worshiping God for anything in return. That's so hard. It's so hard. We live in such a transactional world, such a conditional world that we we place that same ethic on God. And we, we say, well, God, if I do this for you, why don't you do this for me? But This is just worshiping God for being God. Worshiping God for being our Savior. Worshiping God for being Him. Not worshiping Him for anything in return. And that's what we're invited to. That's the most human thing, the most human thing, we could possibly do. Do you know what the world needs? It needs us to be fully human the way God wants us to be human, the way God designed humans to be. As Dan will paraphrased, my soul exalts you, great, awesome, just, kind, the Lord our God, holy, holy, holy. My friends, come. Come. Let us be human. Let us be as fully human as we're made to be let us worship God who then impacts every part of our humanity as an offering to the Lord I invite you to stand with me this morning as our worship team comes let's pray together Lord God, we just do worship you, and we do stand on the truth of who you are, and we stand before you as worshipers of the living God. And God, we pray that this God who is king, this God who brings justice and equity, this God who brings forgiveness, this God who is so worthy of our worship, Lord, would you be worshiped and praised today. We stand on you. And because that's true, we ask you, Lord God, as we worship you, as we come as fully human as we can, we pray that you, our almighty God, would impact every aspect of our humanity. That we would be more like Jesus. That like Jesus, we would reflect our good, good Father. And that, Lord, we would calibrate our hearts to you. And in doing so, may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven through us. Help us, Lord God, not to go from this place and forget this time, these words, this truth. Help us, Lord God, and to simply ask, Lord, what is the word for me right now? Help us, Lord God, as worshipers, to ask, what does it look like for me to worship at my workplace tomorrow, in my family gathering today, in my conversations, in my social media use, in my email traffic, in my thoughts. Oh God, calibrate our hearts, our lives to be human. Jesus' name. Amen.